0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. get right get
1: Hello, 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 and welcome to the Song Facts podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan. Thank you so much for being here. Take a quick minute, leave us a nice five-star review wherever you're listening, and go tell a friend. helps us to grow the show, and we certainly do appreciate it. As always, this show is proudly a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. On the show today, I have the great pleasure of chatting with Colin Blundstone of The Zombies, If you're not aware of them by name, I am sure you are aware of them by tune, as they have written some of the most familiar songs of the mid-60s, including Time of the Season and She's Not There, which we get a fascinating story on during this episode. Colin and the band have a new album coming out on March 31st called Different Game that we discuss as well. This is one of those conversations that I really wish could have gone on and on as Colin is full of energy and truly able to draw on memories from events that took place almost 60 years ago. He even called me after the interview to tell me that we had been using the word nourish when what we were meaning to say is the word nurture. So anytime you hear us say nourish, replace it with nurture and you won't skip a beat, please. Sit back and enjoy, Colin Blunstone.
0: To to you you really
1: Colin Blunstone, I want to say thank you so much for coming onto the Song Facts podcast. It's a true pleasure of mine. I, I obviously was introduced to your music by my parents who are your generation and um it's it's just incredible to be talking to you right now so thank you so much well thank you for having me on the show i'm you know i'm really looking forward to it well you should be because you've got a great set of new tunes out let's get right into the new album different game which is coming out march 31st um reading through some of the press info that you all sent to me in the liner notes, I'm seeing multiple accounts of how this the recording of this album seems similar to you all to some of the band's first albums in the you know sixties and early seventies and I'm just kind of wondering if you could elaborate on those similarities and and if that was an uh, purposeful it was i mean. One thing I should say that this album was obviously interrupted
0: by the pandemic. There were two songs, Big time. there were two songs that were recorded so long ago. I, I can't remember. You know, but whenever the lockdown came, they were recorded before that. Um but we'd also we'd learnt from our last album, I think it was 2015, and it was called Still Got That Hunger. And almost by accident, we recorded all of the album with us all in the studio playing live together. It's, it's in some yeah. respects, it's almost like a live album, but it's in a studio environment. And we really enjoyed it because there's an energy in the studio when you're all there playing live that isn't there. If you record your parts separately, which is how a lot of recordings done now. And we really enjoyed that experience in 2015. And we were determined to do it this time around. Uh, but of course with the pandemic it was very hard to get everyone together in this country there was i think there were two separate lockdowns where you were you were not really allowed to leave your house or you were encouraged not to leave your house and our bass player soren koch uh, actually lives in denmark so that made it even more difficult so what could have been you know a couple of months in the studio actually (laughs) turned into a bit of a marathon i think Probably getting on for three years now because we we stuck true to the the ideal that we would all be in the studio together recording at the same time. So uh, mm-hmm. it's been a little bit of a drawn out affair, but it wasn't. It was out of our hands.
1: Do you think that that method of recording has like? Can you hear an effect of that of being of having these songs be interrupted or? Was, there, was it a natural progression and this would have been the end result either way?
0: Oh, I think this is, I, I, I think it's just a natural progression. I don't think there was a problem um, in in that sort of two-year gap. It's the same players uh, playing with the same yeah. spirit. Um, and uh, no, I, I don't think you can you can tell any difference. Another question is, can you tell a difference between an album that's recorded with all the players in the room playing live at the same time and an album that's recorded where people will record their parts separately and i'd like mm-hmm. to think you can tell a difference but um you know maybe it's just in our minds i don't know it's certainly more enjoyable to perform in the studio with all the other guys there because i will sing a song differently if a bass player and drums are in, in the, the room with me and yeah they've all told me that they will perform differently if they can hear the lead vocal and the other instruments as well.
1: Yeah. And you know, it might not be something that as a listener you hear so much, but maybe there's a feeling that you get and like you don't even know what it is. Maybe it's subconscious, you don't even realize it, but maybe just listening back to an album, you just, it, it, if it's played live like that, it can evoke this feeling. I think we read a lot about bands who are on tour, you know, playing 200 shows and in the middle of it, they're just, so connected and they just say, let's take a couple days and pop into a studio and record this new song that we've got, because we're just so tight as a band right now. And I think that that kind of thing happens. So a band knows that they have that energy. And I'm guessing that a listener can pick up on it in some way, shape or form.
0: Well, I certainly would like to think so. Um, But what I can say is that it's definitely different for the actual recording artists to record like that. And I find it a lot more enjoyable. I um, yeah. You know, I, I wish we, I don't think we've ever done that. Maybe in the 60s we did to uh, be touring, be really tight, and then get into the studio for a couple of days and then go back on tour again. I think we did that in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, we haven't done it more recently. And I, I would love to do that because you, when you finish a tour, you always think, yeah, this <laughs> is great. You know, we're, we just float through these performances that, the energy levels are incredible everybody's feeling really confident and that would be a great time to start recording but usually we're, we're so exhausted that that's when we that's when um, we sort of go and visit the asylum to try and get our our brains sorted out at yeah. the end of a tour it... um i
1: wanted to jump in uh, i wanted to jump into this second single that you guys just released because i have kind of th- this this podcast all about getting kind of the stories behind the songs and okay. i I was listening to this. My I, my wife and I this. We're recording this on the fifteenth of February, on Valentine's Day is when the song was released. So yesterday, and my wife and I went to a movie last night to. Um, just kind of have have ourselves a little date night. And on the way out, I was like, hey, I'm doing this interview tomorrow. Let's listen to this song on the way home. And it just happened to be we went into the theater during really nice, just like a pleasant evening. And we came out to like a blizzard and it was just storming all night. Like we have like four or five inches of snow here. And um, so I'm listening to this song at the beginnings of this as we're driving home. And I've just got snow coming through the windshield. And, and it's just like this surreal moment with this music. And I guess between the beautiful finger picking um, throughout and then the harmonies that you guys kind of wrapped the song up with, the song is called Love You While I Can. Damn. this tune come together it's just a beautiful song
0: well it, I mean, it does have a, a quite an interesting story in that we're managed by a guy and a, and a, and a young lady uh, um, the rocks management of, of Chris and Cindy and they got married about right at the begin when we were beginning this um, album so before the pandemic and Rod thought I'd really like to write a song for the wedding and so it was written for them unfortunately they i found most of these songs quite easy to to get into the one song that i found really challenging and it sounds so simple i i'm embarrassed to say this but i really just one song i struggled on this love you while i can and so i didn't feel confident enough to sing it at their wedding which was the plan Saying this will be our year because we felt we felt quite secure about that. As, as an old <laughs> classic track from Odyssey and Oracle. So they have still got a performance, but they they got a different song. So it was very interesting for me. This song was originally written on piano, oh. and Tom, our guitarist, took the exact notes that Rob was playing and played them on guitar, and it sounded so effective that it was the whole idea of the song was transferred wow. to acoustic. Oh, and now you hear it like that you can't imagine it any other way no. but when I first heard it I heard it on piano when Rod writes a song and he is very much the dominant songwriter in in the zombies he lives quite near to me and when he writes a song he will always call me and then we'll go and rehearse that song just the two of us before we move on to the band and we're, and we're very we go into it in quite some depth especially the phrasing of the song of course the melody we don't, we're not improvising, you know, um, when, when i perform the song, it's absolutely what he wrote. The, the melody will be exactly what he wrote, not close exactly. And the phrasing will be exactly the same. And we're forever talking about is this note pushed or is this, should this note be on the beat? And it's, it's one of the things that I dread when we're recording if Rod says now, can you get that phrase on the beat? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, I thought I was <laughs> singing on the beat. Now this is a problem, and this, these were the kind of things that were happening when we were first trying to go through this single "Love You While I Can." I, I just struggled with it, but now I hear it. Of course, it's it's absolutely worthwhile, and hopefully,
1: it sounds effortless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hope. Yeah, listening to it, you don't you don't hear anything like that. Like it just. I do think when you have a when you have like this descending like, finger-picking style of music, in my opinion, someone who's played some music but listened to a lot of music, it's got to be hard to find a melody to weave into that because it is already kind of a busy musical piece. And um, I I guess I credit you guys for being so detail-oriented. Is that something that has been... uh, Like, you guys have a long career now. Is that something that's always been where it's... You guys sit down and, and really dig into this and be like... I want this note to sound exactly like this at this exact time, either on the beat, ahead of the beat, just behind the beat. Is that something that kind of details? Is that your guys' kind of secret to success here? Well, uh,
0: I don't want to be too presumptuous and say secret to success, but <laughs> it's the way we do things, yeah. Especially on Rod songs. Um, yeah, he usually has a very full picture of how he wants the song to mm-hmm. sound. For instance... Um, he certainly will know what the chords are and what the melody is, and he'll probably have a pretty good idea what he wants the bass to play and and sometimes the drums as well. It's the, those parts are written as part of the song, and um, he's very patient and very supportive uh, when you're coming to terms with a song. But I always say to him, "I want this to be how you want it to be. I want
1: it to be exactly." Um, how how you hear it yeah and, and that's, that's what we try and get No, i think you guys do it really well and you've been doing it for a long time um in 2019 you guys were inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame yeah. congratulations um mm-hmm. i'd like to just get you to talk a little bit about what that meant to you and if you could take us into you know that moment when you got that phone call originally from the from the rock hall
0: Okay, well, I mean, to start with, I think we were nominated four times before we were inducted. And I've got to be honest, I'd started to think that maybe it would never happen. Um, So I wasn't following the voting perhaps as close as I might have been. That's an interesting
1: thing to me of like getting these nominations and just not knowing. So it's like managing hope and expectation. And that's got to be a thing that's difficult. Because you don't want to set yourself up for um, heartbreak,
0: you know? I know. And and so because we've been nominated and not inducted so many times before, I, I probably wasn't paying as much attention as I was when we were first nominated. And there's a, a trick to this also that um, there's the fan vote, which is mm. public. Everyone knows that. And we we were incredibly well supported. We had over 300,000 votes. It's just wow. mind boggling. Um then the, the vote by the members of the uh, of the Rock Hall is private. So you don't know um, how that, no one knows how that vote's going. So it's a surprise for everyone. And then, yeah, we got the magic phone call. And, uh, you know, I was very happy. And I, I think I had to sit down for a little while and uh, just absorb <laughs> it all. Because this sort of thing, where you get any sort of acknowledgement from your peer group, is it's so it's exciting it's fulfilling it's so meaningful it's what artists long for is to get acknowledgement from from their peers and that's what this is to be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame the the main vote is from fellow inductees and yeah it was it was a wonderful experience and then of course you you go to the induction ceremony in our case it was at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn mm. in front of 17,000 people. Oh, my God. And the front, you know, few rows, I don't know, 20 or 30 rows, are the great and the good of the music industry. So you've got this huge audience. And then right in the front few rows, you've got these icons of the music industry. And um, it, it was wonderful. It was great. And actually, we played with the original lineup so, so and sadly our lead guitarist passed away some time ago so he wasn't with us obviously but um our original bass player chris white and our original drummer hugh grundy played with us and um, that was fantastic fantastic for us and fantastic for them because they don't play regularly anymore um, and i just thought they did incredibly well as we have gone out and we've, uh, we've done some tours recently of, of playing Odyssey and Oracle in its entirety. And and they've played on on those tours. But other than those tours, they haven't played since 1967. Oh, wow. So to get up in front of an audience like that, I thought they did incredibly well. When we first decided to, to play Odyssey and Oracle in its entirety, it was 2008. And we were celebrating the 40th anniversary of Odyssey and Oracle. Um, and it was at the Shepherds Bush Empire. And Rod and I were on tour at the time when we were putting this, the idea of the show together, and we said, you know, we should get together with Chris White and Hugh Grundy, the other original members. We, we You know, we have to see if they can play. They haven't played since... Is this is 2008. They haven't <laughs> played since 1967. So we thought, yeah, I mean, without being too obvious, you know, we're just saying we're getting together for a playthrough, but we were watching very closely and listening very closely anyway we got together and it's a very humiliating experience because Hugh and Chris who hadn't played since 1967 had obviously rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed they were absolutely no perfect and Rod and I who hadn't rehearsed at all because we were thought we're in the middle of a tour we're fine we're not worried about us we were all over the place oh amazing (laughs) (laughs) it was a little bit embarrassing but it was it was it was a very good thing for us to realize that just because we're currently touring doesn't mean that we know odyssey and oracle as well as we need to know it so we had to do a bit of homework but i mean it really made me laugh that the two guys we were checking on note perfect us horrendous we were all over the place that's amazing Uh, so the, the thing is that they did know uh, Odyssey and Oracle pretty well. And um, of course, we played Teller No as well. That's not on Odyssey and Oracle. Um, we played three or four songs from the album and they were immaculate. They just played fantastically.
1: God, that's so great. I mean, it's, it's it had to be an interesting phone call for them to get the invite and then be like, Ooh, I gotta, I gotta start woodshed I gotta really start yeah. practicing here. Cause I know, maybe they just kept themselves sharp for 40 years. Who knows? Could be,
0: <laughs> I have a feeling that they got into some serious rehearsals. I don't know if they played together because actually our original drummer lives off the coast of Spain. So he doesn't live in this country mm. anymore, but they'd certainly put some hours in. I think in a way, I think that's cheating they put some out of
1: it and
0: we hadn't you know I just I thought it was hysterical but uh, there
1: we are we live the land. yeah absolutely stay tuned for more Song Facts Podcast right after this
0: get you
1: song back right um okay i need to take us i need to ask you one question to like take us back to that that those early days in the uh early mid 60s and i think the song she's not there just has such an amazing story from what i've been able to gather um doing my research on it and it sounds like you all won a talent contest and then were awarded a recording session so rod Argent, he wrote this one specifically for that session, like the song didn't exist until then. I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on that. What do you remember about, I guess at this time in 1963, 64, that absolutely just must have been a whirlwind experience for you guys. How
0: many people cried, but it's too late to say. absolutely it was and and from the time from when you recorded a song to when it was released was was a very short period of time in those days there was a turn every single so it wasn't 63 it was the spring of 64 that we recorded it and it was released on July the 24th in this country July the 24th, 1964 so there was only a few weeks gap but how it came about and I'm going to choose my words carefully is that we won a big rock and roll competition which led to a record contract because we can never agree if the, part of the prize for winning the competition was actually a recording contract. <laughs> I don't think it was. I think it was a little bit of a coincidence that we won this competition and that led to being introduced to some people that we, we ended up with a record contract. But, but anyway, we did. We were introduced to a producer called Ken Jones who helped us get a deal with Decca Studios. And about 10 days before the the session Ken was giving us a bit of a pep talk. R- remember, you know, I think Rod and I were 18 at this this time. Okay. And Paul Atkinson was a year younger, 17. Um and he was giving us a pep talk and he he said at one point he said, you know, cuz we were we thought of ourselves as a rhythm and blues band. At one time that was the band was called The Zombies R&B cuz we played rhythm mm. and blues. Okay. And we were gonna do some rhythm and blues tracks in the studio, but he said, you know, you could always write something for this session. And then he went on and talked about other things. That was it. And I didn't pay any attention to it, but Rod and Chris White did. And they both went away and wrote two, one song each, two really good songs. A few days later, it was three or four days later, Rod came back and played us, She's Not There. Chris played us the song that became the B-side, You Make Me Feel Good, the two really good songs. Yeah. And um, I think we knew, she, well, both of them were special, but particularly She's Not There, I think we knew was was special. And immediately we wanted to record that. In the first session, we recorded the Gershwin classic, which we did it like as a jazz waltz. It's very unusual, called Summertime. And we did another song of Rod's called It's All Right With Me, which is just a bit of a, a rocker and then we did the two songs that they'd written for the session but i mean the session nearly didn't happen because we'd been booked into the studio at seven o'clock at night because it was it was thought then that to record in the evening going through the night was more sort of artistically stimulating (laughs) than to record during (laughs) the day well i that may be the case I don't think as you get older, that's the case. because We would have have been asleep if we were doing it now. But um, so we went in at about seven o'clock and we were introduced. We'd never met him before. This recording engineer who was a really good engineer and had engineered a lot of big hits, big hits. But because we got there at seven o'clock in the evening, unfortunately, he'd been at a wedding all day. And he was horrifically drunk. (laughs) Not only... (laughs) <laughs> Not only horrifically drunk, but he was very aggressively drunk as well. So this is our first time in a commercial studio, and we're just going through some songs. And I put some headphones on, some cans on, and this guy, this engineer, is screaming down the uh, in these headphones with the worst language you can possibly think of, very, very aggressive. And it makes me laugh because having been in the business for over sixty years. In that first half an hour i was thinking with this guy screaming at me i was thinking i don't think this music business is for me (laughs)
1: i've
0: I've, I've had enough of this then we had a bit of luck and he passed out he passed out cold (laughs) on the floor we we had to carry him out of the studio one on each arm and one on each leg we took him up two flights of stairs we put him in a london black taxi and we <laughs> goodbye. We never saw him again, ever. Unbelievable. And the assistant engineer took over. And the assistant engineer was called Gus Dudgeon. And I don't know if you're familiar with Gus's name, but he went on to be one of the most successful producers of all times. No longer with us, but he recorded all of Elton's early albums. Okay. He recorded Bowie, Kiki D. If you just look up Gus Dudgeon, he's responsible for so much well, for producing so much wonderful music, he was the assistant engineer that night, and that was his first session ever, where he was the recording engineer, and it was our first session ever. And as I said, he's no longer with us. But whenever I saw him, he never forgot that that was his first session and our first session. And you know, he went on to be incredibly successful. And it wouldn't have happened if this guy hadn't gone to a wedding and, and got horrendously drunk. So, I mean, the session nearly didn't happen. Yeah, I'm wow. not sure if it'd if have gone on like that. I don't know if it would have happened at all. But it did happen. And She's Not There was released a few weeks later. And um, it was on a television show over here, a live television show. It was called Jukebox Jury, where they have four panellists who they judge whether seven or eight songs are going to be a hit or a miss it's this is a long time ago it's very static but one of the panelists was george harrison and of course only were we thinking it's wonderful he's going to listen to our record but the whole country was watching because it was george harrison and he he said well done zombies you know i think this will be a hit well you know you couldn't fail after that george harrison says it's going to be a hit it is a hit and and that's, in a way, the story of She's Not There. I do think there was a bit of a reluctance in America because it was quite unusual. She's Not There, a lot of our songs, they're not what other people are recording. We've, yeah. we've never tried to follow trends, ever. And there was resistance in America to, I think, even releasing it. And it came out on a subsidiary of uh, London Records called Para Records. I think they released a lot of English artists. and. Um, I don't think the label were over enthusiastic, but over a period of time, it was released in the fall, I think. And by Christmas, it was it was number one in Cashbox and number two or number three in Billboard. We always seem to be a bit lower down in Billboard, but <laughs> we're certainly number one in Cashbox. And um, we actually arrived in America at Christmas 1964 with that record at number one. cash box um Um, so it was a great way to be introduced to the american public as having such a huge hit
1: yeah i mean that kind of was the recipe right of wait till you get something that that reach climbs up pretty high and then and then and then send the band over to the to the to the states but um I, i do agree with you what you said about the sound like when you listen to that song you listen to a lot of your guys earlier stuff it's it's unique. It's you guys. It's not really there's not a genre created for it because you came from the R and B side, so you can feel like, you know, the rhythm sections there with the groove and everything. But it's a different I mean you gotta think about the time that it was in. There was like the 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 culture of the sixties coming up at that time. So there is a little bit of a psychedelic feel to it as well. And it kind of just like winds its way through some of these songs. But I think that's what I like about it. I love when I can't put a band into a box of a genre and i think that you guys um personify that perfectly well i mean i i
0: take that as a great compliment but it does have its drawbacks in that the media like to to put you in a box oh yeah and and i was explained to me in the old days when people made you know when there were actual physical records like singles and things like that and they had these people called rackers who used to you know there would be thousands of records coming into like a wholesale a place that then sent the records off to retail. And they got confused if they didn't know what genre to rack your records in. And (laughs) something like that can make things really difficult. So, although I think it was a great advantage for us to have uh, a unique sound, it did have its downsides as well. And also, you know, uh, radio stations tend to play a particular genre of music. And if they're not sure where you fit, then you can lose radio play over that. But we've never really got too involved in that side of things. And it's just an ob- observation of, and from what people have told me, because we've all it's been very simple with us. We record the best songs we've got to the best of our ability. We're not trying to sound like anybody else. And that was true in 1964. And it's true with us now. We had the added complication in 1964 that Rod and Chris were finding their feet as songwriters. Mm. Uh, later on Rod told me he had written one song before that first session but I don't, I don't think I've ever heard it and I'm not sure if Chris had ever written before so they didn't have a back catalogue of songs they just started writing and one of the problems that we came up against was that Decca immediately wanted a follow-up within six weeks they wanted a follow-up of course we were touring we had no time we were touring and we just had one song and we were pressured into putting that song out. None of us thought it was a hit or commercial at all. And we were right, you know. <laughs> it's the devil in the deep blue sea because either we put a record out that we are not confident will be successful or we probably get dropped by the label. So it's a difficult situation. We So the follow-up in the UK just didn't go anywhere. But in the States, because the records were released a little later in the States, they skipped that and they released Teller No, which was a big hit. Yeah. And it was a hit in the UK as well. But it just seems so short-sighted to me. I think all labels did it at the time, but my only experience was with Decca, that they would put such pressure on you to keep recording singles. And it's a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. The more singles you put out, you know you're going to have a record that isn't going to happen. Yeah. Especially if they're expecting you to tour and promote it at the same time. And I guess they thought in those in those days that artists only had short careers anyway. And no wonder, I wonder why they had short careers, because they were pressured into keep releasing records. And um, they thought artists only had short careers, so they should get the most out of them, the best they can while they're still relevant.
1: I mean, that's one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it is that kind of pressure stifles uh, creativity. And I mean,
2: people, of artists have to have... And-
0: yeah. Try and nourish careers. Uh, um, why? Why not do that? Why not try and help people, developers, musicians, until they can have a lifetime's career? And you could have a lifetime's music out of this band, rather than six months. But that it's not just Decca. All record companies were like that then. All managers were like that, uh, and all agents. They that's how they thought. Huh. Very, very short term.
1: Not like a nourishing and- <laughs> mindset. That kind of thing.
0: They they didn't believe in that kind of thing, and, and <laughs> we were surrounded by people who were like that, absolutely charming, lovely people to talk to, and you know, they just had it in their minds that you would have a very very short career. Well, it, it, I mean, it's laughable looking back at it, but that's just the way it was then.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess I can I could make an argument for both sides, but it definitely, in my opinion, you know. Now that we have hindsight, it's like no, you should be nourishing these bands and like giving them what they need because everyone is has a better view of it, both from the musical, creative, artistic standpoint and the financial standpoint. If we nourish this and like make a long career out of it, because in ten, fifteen years, now we can put out a greatest hits album and we can do a live album and we can do all this stuff, and there's just endless opportunity.
0: Of course, and. You know, I have to be careful. I don't mention any names, but the people that were avi- advising us, they were so short term. And and of course, I'm sure, you know, they were sort of considered at the time to be quite sophisticated businessmen. But with hindsight, they, was, they, was, they were amateurs. They had no idea what they were doing. The people who advised us... Advised many other big acts as well, and they did exactly the same thing to them. And of course, they lost them anyway. Whereas they might have had a, a lifetime's commitment to an artist, and it, of course, it works two ways. Um, they lost they lost artists who went on to have fine careers. Yeah, um, it it just seems so so uh, short sighted looking back.
1: Yeah, no, I completely understand that. um All right, I really appreciate you taking a step back into the uh the history of the band for me i know that there was a great thing story behind that she's not there and i really appreciate you sharing that but let's come back up to this new album because you've got some more songs on here and i want to talk about one in particular it's the first single um just a reminder to people listening the album is called different game and it's coming out march 31st and we're here with colin blundstone of the zombies um dropped reeling and stupid.
0: stupid.
1: name of the first single great name great song and i think okay so i hope that this doesn't i, I always get nervous like making these kinds of connections because i just jump what jump happens first in my brain but i put on this track and i just get tinges of steely dan and i'm wondering if that's hopefully a compliment mm-hmm. and what you can tell me about this tune well, just to cover that point, yes, it's
0: very much a compliment because in no way would we ever try to copy anybody. But that's just the way um uh, the, the track evolved. Uh, you know, we were all playing live in the studio at the same time. Rod's written the song and then we throw it open to the guys. And this is what this is what happened. And I, I think Steely Dan are one of the finest bands ever. So yeah. if in any way this track reminds you of Steely Dan, I take that as a great compliment. Um, the song itself, yeah, it was written by Rod. I think it's a great title, <laughs> really great title. <laughs> I one time he was thinking of calling it um, uh, Drop Reeling and Naked, but I think stupid is much better. Yeah. And so this, is, this is what it developed to. And I was talking to him about the lyric and he just quite simply explained it as when you're in a, what you th- think of uh, a secure relationship and the carpet's pulled from under you it's a great shock and it's it's quite hard to take and it, how do you feel dropped reeling and stupid and that's that's the that's the trigger for the song i love and that the-
1: i have absolutely been there and i didn't realize that that was the root of this that thought process mm-hmm. and i understand that so perfectly and this just fulfills the song so much more i'm sorry go on <laughs>
0: oh great i'm really glad because um some of the songs i i i can't you know rod wrote as a most of the songs and i don't know the story behind some of the songs because rod he usually plays the cards very close to his chest yeah. and he would always say that the song means to you what it means to you it might mean something completely different to rod or to me or to you so he he tries to make the um the, the lyrics not too personal to him um, it's it's for, this, The song's for everyone. But he did actually tell me that that was the trigger for this particular song. So I'm glad you asked me to explain that yeah. one because there's probably a few on there I can't explain. Um, another thing with Rob when he writes a song I'm always very conscious of. It's very important to him how a word sings. Um, so sometimes you'll get someone who's perhaps explaining a really complicated story in a song And and there's a jarring line in there or jarring phrase, and you think, wow, I think you could have found a better way to explain that in a song. But but Rod is always very conscious of how um, a word sings, and I I think he's a great songwriter. And you know I've tried to learn from him, and uh, when when I write, I try and do
1: the same thing. I really like it i i love that that's the root of this song and um there will be a snippet played on this for people to listen to it but i encourage you to go i've listened to the album top to bottom it's so good i'm so happy that you guys are still out producing being creative it's i i like it because i'm the kind of person that tries to keep that mindset of you're just never too old to start something new and um and i think that this is a testament to it like you guys could have packed it up and and not keep doing what you're doing, but not only are you out there doing what you want to be doing, but you're just continuing to create new music, and I I, I really like that, respect it, and appreciate it. Um, The last question that I have for you, I know you guys are doing a lot of press, and I appreciate your time. I actually asked my editor, um, and the editor of Song Facts, the website, Carl Weiser, to submit a question, and he asked, What's a song by another artist that has had the biggest impact on you?
0: Wow. Wow. I'll tell you you one song that had a big impact on me in many ways. Um, I've always been, uh, you know, I was a huge fan of anything by the Beatles, but I'm going to choose something else. Um, We were also uh, huge fans and and still are of the Beach Boys. And we recently toured with Brian Wilson. Amazing. Amazing. And I was asked to sing God Only Knows oh. on stage with Brian Wilson and his wonderful band. And I can't tell you how exciting, thrilling and intimidating. Yeah. Was. <laughs> so, I, you know, God Only Knows is certainly a very special song. And to have sung it with Brian, uh, you know. That's a song I'll, I'll, that's a story I'll be telling to my um, to my
1: grandchildren. Absolutely. so I've got to ask, did you add your own new layer of harmony or did he assign you one of those layers?
0: <laughs> I, I just sang the melody. Okay. I sang the melody <laughs> and I stuck to it very resonantly and then the band did all the complicated, wonderful stuff around me. Um, yeah, I, I played it very safe believe
1: me I have to imagine I mean I recently did I interviewed an author who um, wrote a book and and he had like 50 songs that were just these amazing songs throughout time and kind of telling some of the stories behind them. And that song is one of them that I asked about and that we talked about and it's funny to me that that that, that you bring that up and that you played it live because that's a song that I've always imagined Brian Wilson creating in the studio. And then the band, like the kind of the story behind it is that they, they were out on tour. They came back and he had a lot of these songs written and ready for the band to record. And I imagine that the band came back from tour and was like, how do you expect us to do this live? Like, and hit these notes and hit these harmonies so perfectly throughout this. And I just have to, I can't imagine how intimidating that was for you, but kudos.
0: Yeah, thank you. It was um you know as i said before i can't choose other words it it was thrilling and just a little bit scary and the yeah. first time we did it, we did it in the greek theater in uh los angeles so there's seven and a half thousand people there it's not <laughs> it's not a place where you want to go <laughs> and be a bit shaky you know you've got to be on it Um uh, yeah so
1: that was that was a wonderful experience amazing um colin blundstone thank you so much for your time and your music and i know you guys have some touring coming up um there's some u.s dates and plenty in the uk as well i'm gonna have those linked in the show notes for people to check out i'm hoping that you guys have a great time what an amazing album and just thank you so much bye been a pleasure thank you so much to colin for coming on to the show Be sure to check out the album on March 31st and check the show notes to see if they have a tour stop near you. And as always, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. Thank you so much.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.